Ben, in the beginning of this marvelous book, this letter to a group of people who were struggling, as I mentioned, the Hebrew Christians of the first century who had forsaken Judaism and embraced Christ. And what that was doing was costing them a lot. It costing them... Uh, through that being excommunicated from Judaism, costing them their livelihood, costing them their families often if their families remained in Judaism and they didn't, and costing them any function, functionality in their society, in their culture. Uh, and they were discouraged. And we looked in chapter 1 how the writer is wanting to not just encourage them, but to correct them, to to bring them to a place of of not being complacent about the things of God, of not relaxing about the things of God to the point where they were compromising their walk with him. And we looked at that. We looked at how the writer begins by going right into the deity or the godness. That's what deity means, that Jesus is God. And he goes right in at the beginning of chapter 1 and, and goes through that. And then launches from there into the fact that Jesus as God, as God in the flesh, is greater than angels because they knew, the Jews knew that the angels had been the ones, the, the messengers, the divine messengers who brought the Old Testament. We looked at three different places, didn't go there, but we mentioned three different places where the scripture pro proclaims that. And so now, as we got into the beginning of chapter two last week, and we talked about what it is to drift and how they were, uh, the, the writer is, really concerned because he doesn't want these people to lose their mooring, to lose their anchorage in Christ, and to begin to drift back into Judaism or to some other ism or to, to begin to go backwards because there is no such thing as neutral in God's economy. You're either moving forwards or you're moving backwards, and he didn't want to see them drift. And he says in there, how can we escape so great a salvation if we neglect these things. And we we looked at where he says here in, in chapter 2 to pay close attention. And he's exhorting these people and saying, you need to stay focused on the things of God and the things of Christ. Because if you don't, if you're not intentional about that, you're going to drift. I talked about that a lot last week. Now, in, in chapter 2 here, beginning in verse 5, the writer shifts his focus a bit and instead of talking about Jesus in his deity, in his godness, in the fact that he is God in the flesh, God the Son, he begins now to attack it from a, a different angle and to talk about the humanity of Christ, how he, God, stepped out of eternity into time and took on humanity. He actually became a man. That didn't mean he stopped being God. I want to look at some things here, as pertains to this chapter. And in context, they were thinking, the people would be thinking, well, you know, Jesus was just a man. I mean, we have angels, and you know, they can kind of fly around, do all the things they do, fly around, but you know, they had the ability to move about. They didn't have a physical body in the sense that humans do. And so are angels really greater than Jesus because he had a physical body? being. He had a physical body. And, and so the writer wants to bring some correction on that, but he goes into some great detail on just what 
the incarnation, that's what we call it, of Christ is and what that means to us, what it meant to them and by application what it means to us. And so we're going to look at, we're going to begin this morning by looking at five things about the incarnation uh, before we actually get into the text. Now the word incarnation, uh, the, the word carne or carne, carnos, depending on the usage in Greek, it simply means flesh. It means if you've ever had carne asada, it means meat. <laughs> and so what it's talking about there, the, the fancy word incarnation means that Jesus became flesh. The first thing is that he was preexistent. He was not always a man. You got to understand this, that, that in his preexistence, that in his eternality, he is an eternal being. Remember, we looked at that, the difference between being immortal, we are, and eternal, he is, big difference. He has no beginning. He has no end. We have a beginning. Now, we don't have an end because we will go to be with the Lord or go to be separated from God forever. That's what hell is for, but it's not created for us. It's created for fallen angels, but that's people choose that. The point is, is that we got to understand that God is existent in three distinct persons. He is existent in God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit. The Father doesn't take on flesh. It's, the Father will never be incarnate. The Holy Spirit doesn't take on a body. He's not incarnate. Jesus is distinct. He is separate in that sense. Three persons, one essence. And if that gives you brain cramps, good. Uh, because you will not understand that this side of heaven. We don't have the capacity to understand the Trinity. Uh, any more than we have the cap capacity to understand the mechanics involved in God assuming humanity. Think about it. How would it, I mean, how it, to me, it just, it twists my brain to think of God not stepping out of his godness, but stepping into human form, becoming a man. It's just, to me, it's amazing. So the couple, there's a couple of hot debates. They were hot debates in the first century, and they're still hot debates today in some circles. They're settled as far as I'm concerned. But uh, the first is the resurrection. The, the people wanted to, to figure out how to do an end run on the fact that Jesus actually rose from the dead. And in human terms, you're not going to get it. You're not going to figure it out. I mean, he literally came back to life. His body was dead. And we looked at that when we looked at the crucifixion and we looked at the resurrection not long ago in the Gospel of John. That was a hotly debated topic in the first century. And there are some out there now that go, oh, hogwash, that Christianity stuff. Yeah, I don't want to. Nobody raises from the dead. Come on, come on. You know, no, no, no. And yet it was one of the most attested to events in all of history. I mean, as far as significant events, he was seen by over 500. The eyewitness accounts of his resurrection were numerous and they correlated to one another. And so that became a hard thing to argue against. However, the other thing that was a hot debate in the first century was the incarnation, that God would become a man. And there was a group of people called the Gnostics. If you want to read 1 John, First John is where the Apostle John addresses Gnosticism. And part of that Gnosticism was saying that 
Jesus wasn't really a man. He just kind of showed up like a man, but he wasn't an actual flesh and bones person. There are groups today that say that when Jesus resurrected, that he resurrected as a ghost, as he resurrected as a spirit, that he didn't bodily resurrect. That's not what the Bible teaches. So he was incarnate, preexistent. The next thing I want to look at is he was born of a virgin. He was born with a human nature. And yet he was born without a sin nature. That's what the virgin birth is about. The lineage of Adam, which is where we inherit a nature of sin. (laughs) Oh, I want a rabbit trail there. But the nature of Adam is something that all of us deal with. The predisposition to sin. And yet Jesus was not predisposed to sin, but he was tempted. The Bible says he was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. He was fully man and fully God. Not half and half, but 100% God and 100% man. He had a human nature. He had two natures, fully human nature and fully the nature of God. Uh, read something to, to you here that I came across that I thought was interesting. Jesus Christ was born of a woman. He was born to parents. He had uncles, aunts, and cousins. He hungered. He thirsted. He got tired. He fell asleep. He yawned. He had internal organs and hands and feet and hair, and his family was a part of a tribe of people in Israel. His family had traditions and beliefs. They celebrated holidays and traditions, and sat around and had conversations. They laughed and cried and talked together. Think about this, in the humanity of Christ. Just like you, just like me, in that sense. The application of this is powerful. God wanted to identify with us. Part of the reason that Jesus took on humanity. The fourth thing is that he added humanity, as I mentioned, uh, We're told in in Philippians chapter 2, the Apostle Paul says, Have this attitude in yourselves, which is also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, didn't regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. So, with the humanity of Christ, it's a matter of addition, not subtraction. He's... Oh, I get tongue-tied sometimes trying to figure out the best way to explain these things. Remaining what he was, he became what he was not. Christ was not now God minus some elements of his deity or godness, but God plus all that he had made his own by taking manhood to himself. Thus, Jesus did not give up any of his divine attributes at the incarnation. He remained in full possession of all of them. For if he were ever to give up any of his divine attributes, he would cease being God. Do you understand that? That all of the things that make him God, he didn't set those aside to take on humanity. He retained them. But there are some differences that he voluntarily took on. He divested himself of certain rights as God when he took on humanity as God the Son. And and I know, I want you to hang with me here. This Lengthy introduction will will help the passage that we're going to go into, which can be really confusing. It'll help make it really clear. Three ways that Jesus divested himself of 
certain rights that he had as God. First is he restricted himself to a human body with all of its limitations. When he took on humanity, he limited himself. He until It wasn't until after he resurrected that he had the capacity and the ability to you know, pass through walls and do all that we see after he resurrects. That he was limited, but he voluntarily limited himself. Also, the second thing we see is that he veiled or hid his glory from the people. All right? Understand, when the Apostle John sees Jesus in his glorified state in Revelation chapter 1, he doesn't look like Jesus that you see riding a donkey into town. He's in his glory. When, when they saw Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration and that he, he his, his face, his his person, radiant like the sun. That's the visual manifestation of his glory. It, that he limited that. He put that aside. He concealed his glory from the people in order to be a man, in order to experience that which men experience. The third thing is he exercised his relative attributes. In other words, he had ability. He had dominion over nature. He had dominion over this planet, uh, and he exercised that, but he didn't do it of his own initiative. He always did it under the initiative of the Father, all right? So he wasn't doing that whole thing on his own. He limited himself by exercising his relative attributes only by the will of God the Father and never by his own initiative. Those three things are the ways that Jesus limited himself as man, holy God, holy man. The last thing is that he bodily resurrected. Why is that important? Because he remains a man. He didn't stop being human with the crucifixion, with the resurrection. He resurrected with a body. He still has one. We will likely be able to see the scars in his hands, his side, he still has a physical body. It's a glorified body now. It's no longer limited. Part of what they looked at when they thought, well, Jesus has a body, and so he's not as good as the angels are, was that he's limited. But he did that on purpose, and we'll look at more extensively why here in a few minutes. But the point is, is that he voluntarily set those things aside, his divine prerogative, to experience everything that you and I experience to experience what it is to be tempted, to experience what it is to be tortured, to experience what it is to be loved, and to extent... I mean, he experienced the things that we experienced as a man. Great comfort in that, folks. Great comfort. Because we have a God. We have in Jesus one who can identify with everything that we go through. So after the exhortation in... in Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After we look at this thing where he says, pay attention to what's been said in chapter 1. Don't drift. Pay close attention. And, and, and don't miss it. Don't miss so great a salvation. After that, we get into to verse 5. And we're going to look at, we're going to take the rest of this chapter. I'm going to break it down into four reasons that Jesus' humanity is superior and necessary. Okay? And... This is really important as in understanding Jesus the man. 
The first is regaining what was lost. And uh, his humanity enabled him to regain our lost dominion and destiny. Remember, when God created Adam back in the garden, he gave him dominion over the planet. He gave him dominion over the creation. And he appointed him to rule over creation. And we know that that was forfeit. It didn't take long for them to blow it, to sin, and for us then to inherit that nature, that sin nature, because the moment that they sinned, they became aware of their nakedness and the whole deal. Uh, I'm not going to go back into Genesis, but it was forfeit. Dominion over the earth was forfeit in the garden. Destiny, the destiny to be in God's presence was spoiled. And so when Jesus took on a body, when he took on humanity, he came to restore our dominion over the earth, not now, but one day we will rule and reign with him, is what the Bible tells us, but also to restore our destiny. Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels. He's talking about the world, he's talking about the future. He's talking about what's going to take place. God never gave angels the kind of dominion that man originally had over the earth. That was never part of it. Angels don't have dominion. Uh, they won't have dominion over the world to come. So the divine purpose for the world is that man and not angels is to rule in the future, to have dominion once again. Verse 6, but one testified in a certain place saying, and, and here the writer goes and he quotes Psalm chapter 8, verses 4 through 6. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Now, when he talks about the Son of Man here, that's not Jesus. He's talking about man. The Son of Man is a reference. If you look in the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel is called the Son of Man like 80 times. Jesus is also referred to as the Son of Man, but it's all there's always a definite article in front of it, the Son of Man, uh, not the Son of Man, like we're seeing here. And, and so what he's talking about is humanity. He's talking about man. He's talking about men and women. He's not talking about God here. What is man that you're mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? Uh, the smallness of man is what David, as David wrote this psalm, he was marveling over the creative nature of God and that, that he would create man in the smallness of man in, in, in relation to the God of creation and that he's saying, what is man that you're mindful, that you would be mindful of him? He's compared to you, God. He's beyond puny. He doesn't hardly show up. And yet you have done so much with him. You've put your image upon him. And then he gave him dominion over his creation. Verse 7, and you've made him a little lower than the angels. You've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. As I mentioned, chapter 1 talks about the superiority of Jesus over angels through his deity, through his godness. And now he's talking about the superiority that Jesus, he's going to talk about the superiority that Jesus has over angels through his humanity. Do you guys know what a paradox is? A paradox is something that seemingly contradicts, but when you check it out and you investigate it, it makes sense. This is paradoxical. He's saying the angels are lower 
and man is lower than that, and that yet you made him lower than the angels, and yet you've elevated, given him great privilege. It seems paradoxical, and yet in God's view, in God's economy, it's not. Interesting, when we look at Jesus, we consider who Jesus is, and we'll see that as, as, this, as this passage unpacks. Man was given dominion over the earth. Man forfeited that. When Jesus came as the sinless man, he's called the second Adam in the book of Romans. Okay? As the second Adam, he exercised dominion over the earth. What did he do when there was a storm on the sea? He calmed it with a word. Without a word. What did he do when people were coming at him to try to capture him? He walked right through the crowd. What did he do when he had a kid's sack lunch and there were 5,000 people that needed to be fed? He exercised absolute dominion over this earth. He fulfilled that which Adam had forfeited. That's why he's called the second Adam. So in his humanity, he had to be born as a man and to walk this earth and in a sinless life to exercise untarnished dominion. And that's what he did as he walked this earth. And so in doing so, he does that so that he can restore man to regain that which was lost. In verse 7, again, he says, you've made him a little lower than the angels and you've crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. Again, it seems paradoxical. It seems to not make sense. And yet, he man's lower, but he, he's been given so much. And in God's the way that God set things up, man is not going to be lower than the angels forever. In this life, yes. Why was Jesus, and we'll see here in this passage, why is he considered to be lower than the angels? Because he's a man. And, and in God's order, humanity, humans, are lower than angels in this physical presence, in this physical place. Jesus was for a short time lower than the angels, but then was elevated to glory after the crucifixion, resurrection. And we, the Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, that we will judge angels. Not now, but then, when we are brought into glory as well. So in verse cha- er, verse 8 uh, the first half, he says, you put all things in subjection under his feet. Uh, again, a reference to Psalm 8. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. He's talking about complete dominion over the earth. And he's talking about man. There's a problem here, and we'll get to that. But the writer emphasizes the point that God put all things, not some things, under subjection to human beings. And this shows that Jesus must be human. He must take on humanity because God gave this dominion to humans and Jesus exercises the authority that humans would otherwise have. Continuing in verse 8, but now we don't yet see all things put under him. Uh, Psalm 8 in that sense is yet unfulfilled. He says, but... We don't yet see the things that are put under. We don't see. Man is not exercising dominion on this earth in this age. Anything but. We know who has dominion over the earth, and it ain't the good guys. 
that Satan himself has dominion. He has control. This earth is in his possession. Did Jesus purchase the right to the earth? Absolutely. Has he taken it yet? No. In the book of Revelation, we see that the title, that John, John actually weeps because he finds no one worthy to take the title deed to the earth back until the lamb steps up. And there's this beautiful scene there, I think it's in chapter 5, where, where Jesus takes at that time the title deed to the earth and he takes the earth back for permanent dominion over the earth. So what the writer's saying is that man was given dominion he doesn't have dominion right now. Ah, but wait, there's more. Uh, he says, but in verse 9, we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, taking on humanity, for the suffering of death crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. It doesn't say we shall see. It doesn't say we can see. It doesn't say we have seen. It says we see Jesus. Remember, folks, this is 30-some years after the crucifixion, after the resurrection, after the ascension. And the writer here is saying, we see Jesus. What does he mean? Uh, a, a friend and pastor uh, in a, at a church in San Diego was my pastor for a short time. And he was a musician. He wrote a song, part of the lyrics of the song, uh, where you can see him with your heart if you stop looking with your eyes. Uh, beautiful song, and, and essentially what the writer is talking about here is spiritual vision. When Jesus said over and over again, you guys hear me pray that as we begin services often, Lord, give us ears to hear, eyes to see. And, and, and folks, we're not talking about a physical vision. We're talking about the writer saying, but we see Jesus, we see him moving, we see him working in the midst of all of this. That Yes, that dominion, was forfeit, and yet, and, and man is not exercising dominion right now, but, and he says, but, we see him. We don't yet see the things that are put under him, but we see Jesus a little lower than the angels for a period of time while he walked this earth, tasting death, taking on death for everyone. Why? He's the only man that ever walked the earth that didn't deserve to die. And yet he experienced all of it for us. In Romans chapter 5, talk about a little lower, uh, him being a little lower, being a human. Uh, and talk about him being the second Adam. We read, therefore, just as through one man's offense, judgment came to all men, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's righteous act, the free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience many will be made righteous. That's the transaction. That's what you and I get through simple faith in Christ. That Jesus, taking the form of a man, being born, growing up, taking the wrath of God for our sin, we'll get to that in a minute, frees us that he tastes death for everyone. He had to be human to experience death. God can't die. But man can, and he did. He had to conquer death. He had to reverse the curse. He had to restore man's destiny and dominion. 
Second thing we're going to look at here. Bringing many sons to glory. As we move through this, verse 10. Uh, his humanity enables him to bring many sons to glory. And, and so as we look at verse 10, it says, For it was fitting for him. Interesting, it was fitting. He, God could have done it any way he wanted. He could have accomplished our redemption in other ways, but he, in his supreme knowledge, said it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. What does that mean? Number one, when we talk about perfect here, it's not talking about perfection. Jesus wasn't made perfect. He was perfect going in. But it's talking about his completeness. That as the captain of our salvation, that he was complete through sufferings. That he experienced the sufferings that would have come to us. Genuine love involves sacrifice. And when Jesus sacrificed, it was an act of ultimate love for us. When it talks about the captain of our salvation, the same, that word can be translated pioneer. All right, so he's the pioneer. He's the originator, the founder, the initiator, the leader of our salvation. He's the firstborn of the resurrection. And so when the writer talks about the captain, captain of our salvation, he's making a direct reference to the fact that Jesus is the one who initiates, who pioneers, who paves the way for us. Beautiful, the way that that works out. Verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. What he's saying here, Jesus is the one who sanctifies, who makes holy. That's what that means. So he is the one who makes holy, and we are the ones who are being made holy, who are being sanctified, are all of one. How are we all of one? Because he became a human. He's putting it, he's saying this is a level field. When Jesus as a man is the one who sanctifies, and we as men and women are the ones being sanctified, God put this level playing field down. We're all one. We're all in the same boat. And it says that he's not ashamed for this reason to call us brothers, to call us brethren. Phenomenal. He could not be our brother unless he was also a human like us. You've got to understand the significance of the incarnation. You've got to understand. I know these are theological concepts, and folks, you don't have to understand all of the nuts and bolts about it, but you do have to understand the importance of it. It's all important that we know that Jesus, the captain of our salvation, became one of us, that he could bear our penalty before the Father. He became one of us, that he could identify with us. He became one of us. It says that he is not ashamed to call them or us brethren. There are times where I might be ashamed to call him brother. He knows all about us. He knows all about you. He knows all about me. He knows every thought, word, and deed. That's scary. And yet he's not ashamed to call us brothers. Why? Because by the grace of God, he volunteered for all of this. Why? Because he loves you. He loves me with a love that we'll never fully understand this side of heaven. I'll take all of it I can get, but I don't understand his love. It is so complete. His grace is so durable. It is so immense. Again, these things 
sometimes hard to grasp, but they're really important that we understand essentially what the writer is saying here. He's telling these people, hang on. Jesus says, yeah, he might have been a little lower than the angels for a while, but he became a man on purpose, and he did that for you. He did that so that he could clear the way for you. He did that so that you could be brought to glory. Verse 12, saying uh, again back in Psalm 22, I will declare your name to my brethren, and in the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. Again, a reference to Jesus praising the Father with us. So did Jesus sing? Yeah, he did. I remember at the Last Supper that, that he it says that he sang a hymn. Imagine, I, you know, I was reading that, I was studying this, and I just kind of kicked back at my desk and I closed my eyes and I was thinking, what would it have been like to be at the Last Supper and, and Jesus taking the bread and, and then offering thanks and singing a hymn to the Father? What would his voice would have sounded like? I mean, would it, it's, again, the human aspect of this is so important. Verse 13, and again, the writer, he this guy, he knows his Bible. He is firing off Old Testament passages one after the other. And, and it's kind of nice. We don't have to turn to them because he actually quotes them verbatim in here. And now he's going to quote Isaiah chapter 8 where he says, and I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Now, so when he talks about children there, it's a term of endearment. It's, a, it's talking about uh, during worship today, I, I happened to glance over and, and I saw Mandy there with both of her girls, with Leah and with Emily, and all three of them were in the corner. I don't, she's not in here, so I won't embarrass her, but um, they were dancing, her and the little, her little babies. And, and, and Emily was just giggling and stuff. And I was thinking, she and her children, just that connection that they have. And, and, and I just thought how precious that was. And it reminded me of this passage where he quotes Isaiah saying, here am I and the children whom God has given me, talking about Jesus and the affection that he has towards us. So, and his people are precious. Folks, if you have not realized that you are precious in the eyes of God, you are precious in the sight of Jesus himself. Realize that. Realize that. You are the Father's gift to him. Remember in John 17, he says, of those that you have given me, I've not lost one. You're a gift from the Father to the Son. And he identifies as a human, as a man. The third thing we want to look at is disarmament and deliverance. In verses 14 through 16, we see that his humanity enabled him to disarm Satan and to deliver us from death. Verse 14, Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, talking about us, he himself likewise shared the same, talking about him. That's that level field that we're talking about. Humanity, that he took on a body. He took on humanity. He took on human nature, the nature of man. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is, the devil. So disarmed and defeated, the death of Jesus became defeat for the devil. Jesus, or Satan wanted to get Jesus on that cross. He saw that as a way to defeat him, not 
comprehending that that would be his defeat. Because when Jesus went to the cross, atoned for sin, restored man's destiny, Satan was defeated. The title deed was no longer rightfully his. And if he camps out in your yard, it's because you let him. He doesn't have power over the sons and the daughters of God any longer. Yes, he's a counterfeit. Yes, he wants us to think that we have uh, that. And, and don't try to fight him in your flesh, but you have great power from God in doing business with the devil. He's been defeated. He's been overwhelmed. He was overwhelmed at the cross. Now, we know that he still prowls about. We know that this earth is still subjected to futility. That's what it tells us in the book of Romans. And yet, the power of Satan has been defeated for those who believe. Because if you don't believe, your life's still in his hands. You're, you're still of this world. Uh, for the child of God, in but not of this world. Verse 14, inasmuch then as the children have partaken of the flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared the same, that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil. In, in, lost my place here. And release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. So, not just disarmed and delivered is really what he's done. He's disarmed the, the enemy. He's disar disarmed Satan and he's delivered us from death. Talks about the fear of death in verse 15. Through the fear of death, we're all their lifetime subject to bondage. You know, the great... The, one great thing that I believe humanity in general spends our lives in denial of, and that's death. How many products on television do you see that are oriented to keep you from death? I mean, how often, especially as I get older, more and more of my conversations with others are about health and about keeping myself alive. And, and yet, for the child of God, there is no longer a fear of death. And I've told you before, I don't look forward to dying. That's not something that's at the top of my list. But I don't fear death. I mean, it is an event that will result in my graduation from this life to the real realm, the realm where God, that God inhabits and where we will spend eternity in his presence. And so for the child of God, for the seed of Abraham, that's you, that's me. He doesn't say seeds of Abraham. He's not talking about uh, an, an ethnic group, uh, the seed of Abraham being the Jews. He's talking about the spiritual seed of Abraham, because remember the covenant with Abraham was before the Jews. And we are the spiritual seed of Abraham. The Genesis, when God makes the promise to Abraham through you, the families of the earth will be blessed. That's the seed of Abraham. That's you. That's me. That we are spiritual children of him. So he makes that distinction because if you are, again, if you are unregenerate, if you are not redeemed, if you don't belong to Christ, fear death. But if you do, the fear of death has been vanquished. It has been taken out of the way. 
because he died for us. Because he took on a body. He took on humanity so that he could defeat death. And he could disarm the devil. Greatness. Phenomenal understanding in these passages. So it's not angels, but people of faith, Abraham's seed, that he does this with. He, he's saying, you know, he, he didn't do this for angels. God doesn't do this with angels. He does this for people. He does this for man. The last thing, the fourth thing here, is that, is that we have a sympathetic high priest. Jesus' humanity enables him to be a sympathetic high priest to his people. Now, in the Old Testament, they had the Levitical priesthood. There was a high priest that he was the guy once a year on the Day of Atonement that would go into the Holy of Holies and atone for the sins of the people, offer propitiation. What that means is to absorb wrath. Uh, and we'll get to that in a second. Verse 17, therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, take on humanity, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. What that means, that word, it means to absorb wrath or to satisfy God's wrath, to be the propitiate. The difference is, is in the Old Covenant, in the Old Testament, that high priest went in and he made offerings. They sacrificed animals for sin. And they went in and they sprinkled the blood on the mercy seat on the Day of Atonement. Every other day, they still did the animal sacrifices. They did daily sacrifices in the, the, the Old Testament priesthood, in the Law of Moses. Jesus, and we'll look at it further because the writer goes into great detail about Jesus being our high priest after the order of Melchizedek. Uh, and yet, and we'll get to that. It's further on in this in this in the book of Hebrews, but what he's making mention of here is that that high priest, the priest in an Old Testament sense, was the one who represented man to God and represented God to man. All right? He's the intermediary. And what we see in a regular man, in the Levitical priest, the guys that did this and carried out all the ordinances in the Old Testament under Judaism, what well, it was a sinful man that actually performed all of that stuff. And it was a man who could not fully understand what men went through. He said he had to be made like his brethren. He's not ashamed to, be call us, to call us brothers. And that he had to be made like his brothers in order to be a faithful and merciful high priest, in order to understand the human condition. Verse 18, for in that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. So in adding humanity to his deity, Jesus experienced human suffering. He is able to keep us and to help us from temptation. He knows what we go through, even though, as I mentioned, as God, he never sinned. He was tempted in all ways as we are, and yet without sin. And so, do we have a high priest who can relate? Yes, we do. Fully God, fully man. The difference is, excuse me, the difference is, is it wouldn't be animal sacrifices. He is both the high priest and the sacrifice. He fulfills both sides. 
all of those things in the Old Testament, folks, the, I mean, you look at the whole tabernacle, you look at the temple, you look at the sacrifices, you look at, at the every detail points to a future fulfillment in Christ. And so what the writer is doing here is he's looking back. These people would understand what those things were. They would understand what the function of the high priest was. And what he's saying here is he's a better high priest. And remember, part of the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. He's saying he's not only better than angels, he's a better high priest. In his humanity, he was better than angels. He was more sufficient than angels. He was superior to angels. And, and not only superior, but necessary. Why? Uh, came across something that I want to read. This is from a fourth century theologian named Hippo. <laughs> I wondered, I wonder if they got the potamus from him. But this is good. Man's maker was made man that he, ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witnesses, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, and that life might die. That's the humanity of Christ experiencing all that we experience, not just because of some empty theological concept, but because he loves us with a love that is immeasurable. And in that love, took on humanity, that he would not only pay the ultimate price, the sacrifice for us, but that he would experience all that was involved in being human so that we could have a merciful, faithful high priest, someone that relates us to God and relates God to us. In the new covenant, we don't use the priesthood. We, there's, yeah, we're called the kingdom of priests, and Peter talks about a holy priesthood and all that, but there's a different context. But truly, as we consider Christ, as we look at him as God the man, uh, the God-man, as it says uh, on, on the screen. As we look at him, we see that there is just a great deal of significance in understanding his humanity, understanding it rightly. 100% God and 100% man, fully possessing the nature of man, fully possessing the nature of God. Not going to understand how that works. Don't try but be grateful that he did because there is so much that he accomplished for us in his humanity that would not be accomplished any other way. We're going to go to prayer and then we'll have the worship team come up and uh, we'll have one last uh, song before we close. So Father, we want to thank you this morning. Lord, this is, there's just so much packed into such a short amount of time and I pray for my brothers and sisters here that you would give us ears to hear and eyes to see, that we would truly...